If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. Of hearing the message is really important. Hearing the message of God's word, really important, super important. But more important would be hearing the message and living into what it says. There's a group of people that meet over here on Wednesday nights in our little cafe who are trying to learn how to live into what this message says, the message of the gospel. So if you want to take another step, if you're thinking like, I'm not sure exactly how this all works, I just want to invite you to come on over, small group of people. You don't have to prepare. You don't have to do any homework or anything. But just right here in the cafe on Wednesday nights at 6.30, this little group of folks is, uh, are, are gathering to, to learn how to take a, a deeper step into, into doing what, what the word says. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll work through that this morning. Here are the first two verses. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you is not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. In these couple of verses, Paul's reminding the church of the fruit that was born in them, the fruit that was born in their lives. And in spite of great opposition and persecution, the good news is being made manifest among this little group of people to their neighbors and into the ends of the earth. And Paul references here his own persecution. He says, hey, it cost me. Um, he says, uh, but with the help of God, we dared to tell you his gospel. I love that phrase. To face the kind of opposition that Paul faced time and time again, without giving up, to be strong enough, to be courageous enough, to be daring. So powerful. Lots of Paul's letters that he writes are uh, to address certain subjects that are happening in the life of the church uh, maybe there's an area in the life of the church that's kind of gotten sideways, gotten out of control or something like that. And Paul's writing to kind of deal with one of those issues. But in this chapter, especially this chapter two, it's none of that. This is like a full-on love letter. Uh, any of you guys ever written a love letter? Anyone? No, no, no one has ever written a love letter? Oh my gosh. Anybody ever gotten a love letter? Anyone ever received a love letter? Anyone still have the love letter that you received when... I mean, I'm a, I know I'm weird, but I have this box at home in my closet with all the love letters that my beloved had written me way back before there was email and stuff like that. I mean, I got this whole thing. Amazing. Anyway, Paul's writing this incredible love letter um, in which he says, I dared to tell you his gospel. A few years ago, my daughters and I worked on this little book together. Uh, it was called, I Am the One Jesus Loves. And we invited some of our friends and a uh, few of our family to, to write what it's like to wrestle with this truth of I am the one Jesus loves. Uh, I see Miss Kay back there. Miss Kay was a part of that little, little story. All these stories were beautiful. Um, each writer incredibly vulnerable to tell their story. I'm the one Jesus loves. Uh, it's one thing to tell your story like at a small group or, you know, it's another thing to put your story in print. And this little group of people were so vulnerable enough that they said, yeah, I'll, I'll put my story in, in print. 
And so we decided to have a dinner together, uh, hosted at our house. We invited all of these authors to come to our house for a meal that we called the Feast of the Daring. We thought this would be the greatest spot to gather all of these daring people, the courageous, those souls who are willing to take on some of the darkest challenges of their own story and say, yep, I'm the one. I'm the one that Jesus loves. I can only imagine Paul and Silas and Timothy, maybe Titus. They're all sitting around the campfire and they're telling these stories of persecution and opposition and suffering. And then they're talking about harvest and life change and how people have gone from serving idols to serving the Lord and how this sort of idea of hope began to flourish and forgiveness became the norm and the joy of Jesus was just bubbling up in this new group of people. I can only imagine them, these guys sitting around the campfire saying, I am the one Jesus loves. I sat yesterday uh, at a small table with some guys at our men's breakfast um, Beautiful time together. We didn't call our men's breakfast the Feast of the Daring, uh, but we could have. The men that were sitting around our little table, there's just a handful of us sitting around this table and uh, there's masks that were taken off and there was courage to share parts of the story that maybe haven't been shared before and an invitation for folks to pray with and pray for the guys at my table, including me, facing some pretty big giants. Uh, fear, aging, adult children, adult parents. And then there's our own sin that's going on in our own lives. And while this wasn't said directly, it was, I need you to fight with me to slay these giants. It was the feast of the daring. Verse three, down through verse seven, Paul writes these words, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. And you know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people nor from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. In these verses, Paul reminds these guys of the message that he preached and the way that he did it. He says four times in these verses, verses two through nine, he says four times he makes mention of the gospel of God. What Paul is preaching is Christ and Christ crucified. He's not using flattery. He's not puffing anyone up. He's not, uh, he's, he, he's not getting paid by these guys. And he interacts with them without wielding the power of his position, although he could have, or using a firm hand of leadership. He comes to them in humility. He comes to them in mutuality because of the gospel. Because of the gospel, he comes to them in genuine intimacy in their relationships. He uses some really strong language here, these strong metaphors of love. Uh, he describes the love that he has for people in a couple ways. You might've seen it there in verse seven. He talks about being a child and how he was loved um, 
He talks a little bit uh, about being a, a, a father. Check out verse 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. But verse eight, I love verse eight. It's probably the heartbeat of this love letter. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Hey, a couple quick questions here for you to consider. With whom are you delighted to share your life? Uh, maybe second question you could consider, who's delighted to share their life with you? I don't know. What do you, when, I don't know how you guys normally think about Paul, but when I think about Paul, I kind of think of this old guy, kind of a fighter, I don't, I don't normally think of Paul as a lover, uh, but love is what motivates Paul, the love of God, the love of his neighbor. And Paul doesn't just preach about it. Paul lives it. He's describing the way that he loves these guys and the way that these guys love him. And it's not just here in Thessalonica that he lives this way or loves this way. I wanna give you one more window into Paul's life and I hope it will encourage you to think about the way that you live your life, even relationally. If you have your Bibles, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. Paul's writing to this church at Corinth, and the church at Corinth was a mess. Uh, the first letter that he wrote to Corinth was to address some of these issues. They wrote him back, and now he's writing a second time back to them with some specifics. Uh, but here in the middle of this letter, kind of opens another window to his own life and the power of relationships. I'm just going to read it slowly because there's so much going on here. Second Corinthians chapter seven, five, six, and seven. He says this, for when we came into Macedonia, we were harassed at every turn. There's conflicts on the outside and there was fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort that you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me so that my joy was greater than ever. I don't know if you guys can hear him. I can hear him. I, this is just what I hear. I hear him say, I was so tired. I was beyond tired. I was ready to throw my hands up in the air. I was so weary. And everywhere I turned, there was a problem. Problems outside the church, problems inside the church. And then there are my own problems. Did you hear that line? And the fear within. Paul's dealing with that stuff. And I can hear him say, I know the Psalms. I know about being downcast. I know God promises to comfort the downcast. And I was downcast. I was in a pretty low place. Then all of a sudden, my partner, my friend, Titus showed up. And just seeing him, 
being with him, just his presence brought me such comfort and peace. <laughs> and then it's crazy. I can hear him say, and then it's crazy. He told me how you guys long for me and your deep sorrow and your intense concern for what I've experienced, the way you prayed for me with tears even. And after being with Titus and hearing all this stuff, man, I don't know what happened. I can hear Paul say, I don't know what happened, but something in me shifted. My problems didn't go away, but my joy was greater than ever. Three more questions real quick. Whose presence in your life brings deep comfort and peace? You see that person and they come and sit with you and you're like, ah, oh, so glad you're here. Whose presence brings deep comfort and peace? What's your greatest fear in living and loving in this kind of relationship? And maybe how might God be leading you to take a step toward this kind of life, toward this kind of love? Verse nine, uh, he says, surely you remember brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked hard day and night in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you and your witnesses. And so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. We read verse 11, 12 a moment ago. Slide down to verse 13. Verse 13 through 16 says this. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. And the wrath of God has come upon them at last. Okay, that's a lot. Let's start at the end here. It's heavy. Uh, let's start at the end of this section and work backwards. Paul says, the wrath of God has come upon those whose sins have been heaped up. The wrath of God has come upon those that have stood in the way of Paul preaching to the Gentiles. The wrath of God has come upon the Jews who killed Jesus. Sometimes when Paul writes, he writes about how the wrath of God is coming. Um, this time right here, he's saying the wrath of God has come. If you were here last week, we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 says this, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Sometimes he's talking about wrath that's coming, but right here he's talking about the wrath that has come. He says, and, and then he says, and it's about time. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn over to Romans chapter one. Let's just think about this for just a minute. Won't spend too much time here, but this is really important. Romans chapter one, verse 20, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter one, verse 18 through 20. And then a couple of verses that follow. Romans 1, 18 through 20, a couple of verses that follow. The wrath of God 
is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. That's really hard stuff. Because people in this case, specifically the Jews, because they were unrelentingly unrepentant, because these people are actively giving themselves over to sin, God finally says, okay, okay, okay. If that's what you want, then you can have it. If that's what you want, then you can, just, you can just have the consequences of unrepentance is gonna get worse and worse. But if that's what you want, if that's where you wanna go, God says, okay. And this is a clear expression of God's judgment against them. We don't talk a lot about wrath. We don't talk a lot about judgment around here, but it, justice is a part of God's character. God will not turn a blind eye to suffering. He will not allow sin to rule and reign. And even now, He's enacting justice on the earth and there will come a time where his justice will ultimately prevail. This portion of the letter might seem kind of out of place in a love letter, but this portion, this idea of justice is very much about love. God promises to make all things new, to set things right, to bring healing and wholeness and holiness to all things, to this world. It is an expression of his love. And it's super important for you and I to hold fast to. One more word about this and we'll move on. I want you to hear what Peter writes. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Next couple of verses, verse 17 and 18. These are wild verses. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. I don't know where in any other Paul's writings where he uses this kind of love language, the first couple lines there, verse 18, this kind of love, this intense longing. He said, being separated from you is like being an orphan. It's crazy. These guys haven't been together for a really, really long time, but a bond of intimacy has, has just brought these guys together. This little group of people are really, really tight. And Paul says being separated from them is like, is like being an orphan. How much stronger language can you use? I'm not sure. I know a little bit about 
about that orphan story? Some of you know some of that story. I was talking with a person about my age uh, not too long ago whose dad had been promoted to glory. Her mom had died some years before and now it was her dad and she was talking with me and uh, she talked a little bit about how alone she felt and she said, I think I know what it feels like to be an orphan. Uh, Some of you guys know that pain. Paul says he knows it. By not being able to be with this little church, he knows what it feels like to be an orphan. Out of his intense longing, he made every effort to see you. Some of you guys know that intense longing to see somebody, to be with somebody. Man, we know that. We know that story. We have a granddaughter in Birmingham and there's this intense longing to be together as a family. Big, big. But he says, did you catch this? He says, but Satan blocked our way. Did you catch that line? Uh, Obviously this is big. (laughs) Paul's saying that Satan blocked the way for him and his little group of people to be with that little church. Okay, let's talk about this for a second. Stay with me. Turn over to Acts chapter 16, verses six and seven. Acts 16, verses six and seven. Not sure what you think about this so far. We're gonna take it one step further. Acts 16, verses six and seven. Paul wants to go to, uh, Paul wants to go to uh, Galatia. He's headed down there. And he's saying here that his plans were thwarted. But listen to what he says here about this visit. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Listen to this. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So, Got a couple things going on here. In these verses, the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, Satan blocks their way from being able to be with their friends. So what do you do with this? What do you do with this? I think we start and we end with the sovereignty of God. Ultimately, God's will and his way shall prevail. All things are under his control and all things work together for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. There are times when the spirit of God says, no, no, not yet, uh, maybe later. Sometimes the spirit of God says, no, not ever. And there are times when Satan gets in the way. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter six, he talks about Satan being a powerful adversary, an adversary so strong that he not only wants to take Paul down, he wants to take the whole message of Christianity down. He wants to corrupt and crush the love that's starting to flourish between Paul and this little group of people. Our adversary does the same thing here and now, doesn't he? Isn't that what our adversary wants even here and now? Wants to cut off love between brothers and sisters, to diminish the beauty of love being expressed. But again, Satan cannot upend God's prevailing love, but he sure can't confuse things. That's one of Satan's primary characteristics. It's confusion. 
if you're not sure, like, is this God or is this Satan? There's probably a couple of ways to determine, to discern. Confusion, it's from the enemy. Doubt, disbelief, condemnation, from the enemy. Ours is a God of peace. We read that last week. Ours is a God of peace. Ours is a God who gives a living hope in the face of persecution and suffering. Ours is a God who redeems, who restores and renews. Ours is a God of resurrection and ours is a God whose love will always prevail. If there's confusion or disbelief or doubt or condemnation, it's not God. But if God says to wait, if he says no, then I just wanna encourage you, stay with his no. Don't try to look for another way. Don't try to like, you know, uh, uh, if God closes the door, don't go look for a window to be open. You know, like if he closes the door, he closes the door. Let it be closed. And then Paul ends the love letter this way. This is a beautiful ending. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? <laughs> Indeed, you are our glory and joy. What a perfect way to end a love letter. You are our glory and joy. How about you do this? How about you tell the person sitting next to you, you are his glory and joy. Go for it. You are his glory and joy. You are his glory and joy. What about, uh, can we do it one more time? Except this time you say, you are my glory and joy. Go for it. <laughs> Super weird if you don't know the person sitting next to you. I get it, sorry. Or if you don't like the person sitting next to you. <laughs> you are my glory and joy. Wow. That's how he ends it. It's beautiful. I've been thinking about this like all week. Like, how do I end this message? I'm just thinking about you guys and thinking about this truth. Think about where we are, what's going on. How, how do I end this message? And I figured, I'll just remind you what it says. You are God's glory and joy. And indeed, you are our glory and joy. Love you guys.